Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 20th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to talk amongst ourselves about the Cleveland Cavaliers' stunning NBA Finals victory over the Golden State Warriors. And then we'll be joined by Scott Rabb, the author of The Whore of Akron, who will explain to us how it felt to be in Cleveland when the city's 52-year sports championship drought came to an end. Finally, Sports Illustrated's Michael Bamberger will be here to explain the foolishness at Golf's U.S. Open, where Dustin Johnson won his first major despite a rules controversy that was absurd and nitpicky even by the standards of professional golf. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Do you have Hi. a golf voice, Mike? Can you do a golf voice? Is that in yeah, your you range? Sure. You ready? Yeah. That was good. That's yeah, good. That's good. It was so good. Subtle. Okay, no, I'll go. You ready? You ready? You ready? As Davis Love the fourth approaches the third tee, I'm reminded of the event this weekend at Raleigh Racetrack. <laughs> it's Funny Cars this Sunday. Sunday. Love approaches his shot. I can't. I can't commit to it fully. You have to understand. When you just did the uh, racetrack bit, 
our producer mm-hmm. just looked so crestfallen. It's like, my levels, <laughs> my precious, precious levels. I aimed my voice quite away from the mic. It did not matter. And I liked also how it was kind of really the golf announcement from the future with Davis Love the fourth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you never know when to stop with Davis Loves. It's like they're like police academies. I think Davis Love the fourth went straight to video. <laughs> In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we'll talk about the Russian doping, the latest uh, developments therein. And it seems like the track and fielders will not be at the Olympics in Rio. We will discuss. If you want to hear that and other bonus segments on this podcast and other Slate podcasts, you can sign up for the Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus, and you'll get a two-week free trial. Do it. You'll like it. Slate.com slash plus. On Sunday in Oakland, the Cleveland Cavaliers beat the Golden State Warriors 93-89 to to cap off the biggest, greatest, most wondrous comeback in NBA Finals history. It was the first time a team had come back from a 3-1 deficit, not to mention the fact that the Warriors finished 73-9 and in the regular season, the greatest regular season ever. They finished 15-9 and in the playoffs. Not uh, quite as good of a winning percentage there. LeBron James led both teams in the finals in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks. He chased down Andre Iguodala. He made what I uh, wrote was the block of the century. Maybe the block of the millennium would be more appropriate. Mm -hmm. It caused me to scream. Let's listen to it. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Superhuman defensive recovery by LeBron James. So that, Mike, was one of the defining moments of uh, Game 7. Kyrie Irving's three-pointer was another. They had two teams combined to go one for 17 in the last four and a half minutes or so. But it was still pretty great, wasn't it? Yeah, well, a lot of it was it wasn't just that they were missing shots. That was the most exciting play of the game. Oh, yeah, it was I guess, technically a missed shot, wasn't I guess, it? I guess you're right, yeah. This is why I tweeted, you know, that's got to be the greatest block in NBA history. Well, people were talking about the aesthetics of block. Yes, Odell Beckham's catch might be the greatest catch in NFL history. But when you take into account the stage and the game, then it's uh, Tyree's helmet catch or some Super Bowl winning catch. And this is why um, Willie Mays catch in the outfield was the greatest catch in baseball history, even though, of course, Jim Edmonds probably aesthetically had a better one or Bo Jackson. Greatest block. You can't do better than that. It was an aesthetically amazing block, aesthetically important block. Iguodala is not Curry. You know, Iguodala, though with back spasms, goes strong to the hoop. Crazy that we are, or I'm, it's me, it's my fault, or just talking about a block. And it's even, if you want to try to explain this, you could say to someone who's barely conversant with basketball, you could try to put it in, oh, no team's ever come back 3-1. That's true and impressive. Cleveland hasn't won in 52 years. That's true and impressive. Uh, The Warriors were a 73-win greatest team ever. That's true and impressive. Now you see the accretion of all these true and impressive things seem amazing. LeBron James came back in his whole journey. That's true and impressive. But it's just the impossibility after the first two games, two 30-something point blowouts, it's just the impossibility of this seeming to happen. I mean, it is too bad that Kevin Garnett took 
anything is possible as our phrase because this is the biggest anything is possible, the totality of it, as far as I can remember watching sports. I just cannot believe that the Cavaliers won this. I can't believe it. I don't know how long it's going to take for me to believe it. Maybe I'll see the stat. Maybe I'll see the explanation. But add it all up. I can't believe it. Yeah, the totality of the athletic performance and the totality of the narrative plus the excitement of the last game. I mean, we were conditioned to not seeing particularly close games in this series. You mentioned the blowouts, but it went beyond that in in further games later in the series. And to have this game be so tight throughout, what was the biggest lead? Eight points for the Cavs, I think, at one point. The Warriors' biggest lead was was six or seven. Correct me if I'm wrong. Seven, well, seven at halftime, right? Yeah. So to to have it come down to this remarkable conclusion felt fitting, and it felt energizing, and it was you know it was just one of those your mouth is agape for the last twenty minutes of the television program. And the fact that the teams combined to go one for 17 in the last four minutes and 39 seconds was beside the point. It wasn't a reflection that the basketball was bad. It was a reflection on how entertaining and how athletically incredible what we were watching was. Yeah. And what I wrote about today was kind of breaking off from what LeBron said after the game, where he talked about how hard the road has been sort of. I think he meant in Cleveland this time around, but you could extend that back for, you know, 30 years, however long LeBron James has been alive. And to get to that moment of leading your home state team to the first championship in 52 years. Um, But you can also kind of squeeze it down to how hard it was to win this particular game. And the way that games are remembered, the way that series are remembered are in these discrete moments like that block shot Mm -hmm. and like the Kyrie Irving three-pointer. But it was kind of appropriate and fitting that it was so hard for both teams to score at the end of the game. And after LeBron blocked that shot, he came down on the other end and the fairy tale storybook thing is that he makes the shot. He missed. He comes down and then Steph Curry comes down and he misses. And any number of different things could have happened to have changed this outcome and LeBron and Cleveland would have been no less deserving. And that's what I think makes these games so amazing to watch is the fact that it's totally unscripted and LeBron played as well, I think, as any NBA player can play. And yet... There's so many ways it could have gone wrong, and he couldn't do it by himself, and he needed help from Kyrie Irving with the three and Kevin Love playing great defense on the perimeter. Acceptably, at Steph, least we can say Steph acceptably, Curry. yeah. <laughs> but the narrative is all about LeBron and the block and how well he played, and he missed four straight shots in the last four and a half minutes, and no player could have been more deserving than this championship, and there's so many ways in which he could have lost it. And and Draymond Green played almost as well as LeBron, right? Just flip the halves. He had his great half in the first half. And also J.R. Smith hitting those threes. You know, that's the point in the game going from the second to third with the, the span of quarters, including halftime, is often when the Warriors 
pour it on. And so you could see us saying, oh, this was the game that looked good in the first half, but here the Warriors turned and poured it on. J.R. Smith, I want to ask you guys a question, and it's about fandom. One of the great things about sports is, well, there are times when we, of course, have a rooting interest because we grew up rooting for a team or we like a team along the way. And this made me question the reasons behind why I had the rooting interest. I found myself, and I don't know why, I guess because they were aesthetically great all year, rooting for the Warriors. And when Steph was hitting his shots, I was rooting for him. Yet as soon as LeBron won the thing, I couldn't feel better for him. And I almost felt like a gleeful, you know what? Screw you, Warriors. (laughs) Screw you for taking the ball to the outside and Steph being unanimous MVP when in reality, there's like a more of a ballast to LeBron, what we want a basketball player to be. And maybe the best explanation I have is that selfishly, I root for greatness, and I assume that greatness was most embodied and imbued in the Warriors. But then when it proved that the Cavaliers and LeBron were the embodiment of greatness, well, then I gravitated toward and appreciated that. I agree with you. And the only thing I disagree with, or my experience was only slightly different, in that I started to root for LeBron with about two minutes to go in the game. <laughs> I finally Like seven, se- I, seven seconds before the block. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted him to win. Seven seconds before the block, like something clicked inside me and said, you know what? Steph Curry is a fantastic player. I bet they will win another championship. I bet he will continue to excel. But there would be something fitting as a fan, as a viewer, to see LeBron James do one more remarkable thing to complete this narrative. Yeah. But if he pulled two shots out of his bum, then we'd say, oh, that's great. That's Steph being great. (laughs) Yeah. So you're but I didn't ba- feel badly, you know? I didn't feel badly for the Warriors. So what you're basically saying, Mike, is that whoever ends up winning is the des- more deserving team and you're happy for them. That just <laughs> Not made- always. I think it has – well, one of the reasons we liked the Warriors was not just that they rolled up to 73 wins. I mean I was a Knicks fan, so I didn't like the Bulls. I mean yeah. I appreciated Jordan. But it was the style in which they did it. And once they lost that style, what do they have to recommend them? And once it is the uh, Cavaliers playing with uh, at least an equally interesting style, then I drive to that. Yeah, so – as I think you guys know, I've been like pro LeBron ever since the decision. I've been rooting for him the the whole time. So I find the Warriors to be more aesthetically pleasing, and I find Steph Curry to be more fun to watch as a basketball player Relatable. than I do LeBron James. But that didn't mean that I wanted the Warriors or Steph Curry to win. And that's kind of weird to say, but I think you can make the argument, Mike, that you kind of develop more respect for the Warriors in that series against the Thunder where, you know, their shit wasn't working in the playoffs and they found a way to win anyway. And Steph Curry wasn't healthy and he found a way to win anyway. And, you know, Clay Thompson was maybe the only guy on that team who was at peak health and playing at his peak in these last couple series. And yet it seemed that this team that had everything going for him, that had this amazing run of health and luck, that had the best shooters in the game that nobody could compete with, that had the deepest roster, was being pushed and tested to an extent that they never were pushed and tested and they were coming through it and that they were being gritty and resilient in a way that the kind of old school, annoying basketball types were saying that they couldn't be. And how could you not be happy with them 
And, you know, the fact that it didn't happen, like I said, I'm not not pissed off and sad, but I think you could have, I, I think as you were saying, Mike, you couldn't have been displeased with either, you know, scenario. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, the, the disappointing thing was that Curry just didn't play well yeah. and that it seemed and, and like it, he was compromised. Yes. Well, he was hurt. But isn't doesn't this also argue that as much as we look at advanced stats, but also I think have a deeper understanding of the humanity of players. And that's why the three of us have always been on LeBron's side and really chafe at some of the dumb arguments against him. But we are easily as easily manipulated as worldwide wrestling fans because we just saw the face and the heel and how they manipulate the fans. There's Steph Curry being the face, the baby-faced assassin, his actual nickname, but he turns into the heel. He turns into the heel who can't get it done and throws his mouthpiece and has his wife tweet, which is fine, and I don't want to be, you know, sexist or think that that's too big a deal, but it is, you know, embodying more of the heel, and it does seem that I'm more affected by it than maybe I want to give myself credit for. I just want to also point out that J.R. Smith now has an NBA championship ring. Um, yeah. And I don't know whether that should temper our enthusiasm for Cleveland or be some other sort of retribution type story. I mean, this is a guy that was suspended by the NBA for violating the anti-drug program that was suspended for games for various other reasons. That was that was a jackass on the floor that untied shoelaces of players at the foul line that went to China during the lockout. Um Going oh, to China during the lockout? That doesn't make him a jackass. It's just funny that he went to China during the lockout. Um, that he was written off as an NBA player, effectively. And did you see his press conference? I did not see his press conference after. Let's no. play a clip from his press conference, and then you'll feel bad for, for saying all those the things? bad things you said about J.R. Smith. I know a lot of people don't have their parents in their life, their mother or their father, but I got the best two you can ask for, I swear. <laughs> I just want to be like them when I grow up. I mean, my dad is my easily one of my biggest inspirations to play this game. And to hear people talk bad about me, it hurts me because I know it hurts him. And that's not who I am. And I know he raised better, and I know I want to do better. And just everything I do is for my parents and my, my family. The cars is nice, the houses is nice, but none of this matters without them. If it wasn't for the structure and the backbone that I have, I wouldn't be able to mess up and keep coming back and being able to sit in front of you as a world champion. Thank you, JR. Congratulations. You feel bad now, Stefan. I do. It's a redemption story. And he contributed to the team. I mean, that's the, I mean, that is a remarkable thing that he was an important role player. And whether that was because LeBron James pulled him aside and said, this is what you need to do to help us be better, or whether it was because he matured, it worked. I, no one, I wasn't laughing at J.R. Smith during the finals. Okay. So as to the question, you know, as how did this happen? I think that there's either an extremely complicated answer or there's this. 
the Warriors didn't shoot as well as they usually shoot. And they usually shoot crazy. Mm-hmm. And Pelton, Kevin Pelton of ESPN always comes out with these stats. And um, Neil Payne on 538 does too. The kind of makeable shot index. And the Warriors were way below that. And I just think it is that Steph Curry's injured. In fact, not that I think it. He is injured. And there is the sports culture of don't make the excuses of playing with injuries. But there was an interesting stat out that Justin Kabatko of Basketball Reference put together this study, playoff win shares lost to injury by NBA champions. And it shows that the games missed by Steph Curry during the 16 Warriors run represent the biggest chunk of win shares, his 1.9 win shares out of the lineup that's ever happened in a uh, championship run. Now, the Warriors didn't win a championship, but, you know, the shorthand way of saying this is no great player has been as injured in a championship run as the Warriors would have had if they had won the championship. He was hurt and he couldn't shoot as well. I mean, I think that that might just be the explanation. I don't know. Well, Harrison Barnes also just lost the ability to make wide open shots. And the way that the Warriors were able to win for the last two years is that they were able to put a lineup on the floor, the death lineup, that every player on the floor was somebody that you had to cover everywhere on the court, on the wing, in the paint. And as Curry kind of got hurt, as Iguodala got back spasms, as Barnes lost the ability to shoot, as Draymond Green just wasn't there in game five because he was suspended in a game at home. He's not in the death lineup, but Andrew Bogut is a guy who also missed the last two games and his you know, presence was missed. And so the Warriors' best team and best combinations just weren't there for them anymore and you had them i don't really understand what the logic was behind it you know steve kerr put in festus azili in the last you know six minutes of the game and the Cavs immediately like looked for him on switches and lebron james scored you know six points in a row right in azili's face and that might have been the most important play of the game is when lebron baited azili into leaving his feet when LeBron was going to attempt a three-pointer and he made all three foul shots and he wasn't hitting well from three-point. Yeah, so the Warriors' strengths turned into weaknesses and the Cavs' weakness, which was, I think, I mean, one of their weaknesses was Kevin Love and his inability to match up with the Warriors defensively. In the seventh game, he played better than he'd played. And, you know, whether it was because Steph Curry was a shell of himself, you know, in that last play with less than a minute to go, he did stay with Steph on the perimeter. He got important offensive rebounds. And so, you know, the Cavs' weaker links were not as weak as as the Warriors in the last game. Good assignment. Good, good use to assign him there. Good use to assign Tristan Thompson as they did. Can we say that let's give LeBron credit for easing out David Blatt? Lou had a good series. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations to Ron Lou. Mexico, Missouri. You got to get a, a shout out for Mexico, <laughs> Missouri. Uh, LeBron James. Good job, I man. tell you, I looked up what the number one things to do in Mexico, Missouri was. There's a Facebook page dedicated to that. And the number one thing to do in Mexico, Missouri is a McDonald's. What a way, what a way to end this segment. Let's, let's end it there. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, guys, let's make a phone call. Uh, while our producer is dialing, let me just say that this guy is the author of a book. He's a fan of sports. Book about basketball. Book about horse and LeBron mm-hmm. James. All right, is the caller there? I'm here. Scott! 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 It's me! Hey! 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 God bless you guys. Thank you so much. We are now joined by Scott Rabb, the author of The Horror of Akron and the Happiest Man in New Jersey. Hey, Scott. Just New Jersey? Hey, guys. I'm the happiest man on the planet right now, with the possible exception of certain cavaliers. Give us the minute-by-minute account of your day yesterday. Wait, second-by-second. Minute-by-minute. It's got to be second-by-second. It would be it would be hard, uh, you know the the the, the mothership of Bristol, Connecticut, uh, ESPN. Uh, I helped produce a, a thirty for thirty called Believe Land. So part of yesterday was flying to Cleveland with my son. Uh, the the director Andy Billman and a film crew were there at trying to put an epilogue on this thirty for thirty, just just betting that maybe something miraculous would happen. So so a lot of our day was spent in the air, and then some of it was spent, you know, with the film crew, and then then we had a watch party, uh, kind of an area of a bar uh, close to the queue, and uh, lived lived the experience and couldn't sleep and flew back on a 6 a.m. Uh, flight from Cleveland to Newark. My kids, my kids' history test started at 10 this morning. <laughs> uh, in the interim, I experienced ecstasy unlike any I've ever known before. Please, Scott, describe your behavior when the game was tied 89-89 for five minutes. <laughs> well, that's at, at some point during that span, I was on my feet, getting closer and closer uh, to the screen, and and wondering, to the extent I was capable of any sentient uh, function at all, uh, wondering how how this team was going to crush my soul <laughs> again. <laughs> so, you know, it was. It was very difficult, I think, I think for me and maybe every Cleveland fan of my vintage, I can only speak for myself, but that they were actually going to get this done. I mean, once LeBron uh, chased down Iguodala and, and Kyrie hit the three, uh, you know, there was still enough time left for one more segment of the Cleveland sports misery montage. And I'm not saying I felt dread, but I certainly didn't feel anything but but a rising sense of, if not panic, then a certain just, oh, my God, they can't possibly do this again, and they can't possibly come back from being down three games to one to the greatest NBA team ever. 
I mean, I, I'm not, I don't mean to be dismissive about that. It was just utter disbelief that the Cavaliers were going to win three in a row, uh, take, take game seven on the road at, at Oracle from a team that rightfully, I mean, defending champions, a 73-9 and nine team, and a team that had the Cavaliers down three to one. I, I, I was in, in something approaching shock. I think I might still be, and I, it all sounds very cliched and hyperbolic, but, I, but I, I'm, I'm living it. Do you think the euphoria spiked as high as the uh, dysphoria ebbed as low in during the drive, during the fumble, during Jose Mesa? That, that's not just an important question. I, I think I felt beforehand, and again, speaking only for myself, that the Cavaliers get this done. And I, in the abstract, the, the global sense, any of those teams, I always said this, if any of those teams ever actually manages to do this thing, to bring a championship to Cleveland, that all that stuff, every aspect of it becomes a footnote. And, and honestly, and maybe it'll change as, as I feel my way through it, it, it not just outweighs it, it negates it. And, and, and as silly as that sounds, I mean it sincerely. Any, any Cleveland fan, any Browns fan who somehow clings to the idea until there's a Super Bowl or, or a baseball purist who feels it has to be a war, I mean, that's absurd to me. How, how badly do you need to cling to misery? But there is nothing about I mean, it's a, it was a mythic win. It wasn't just a championship that ended a 52-year drought. It was all those other things besides, including the, the redemption, the walking, the walking Bible story that is LeBron James. It, it's unbelievable to me. Uh, uh, you know, going back to Willie Mays' catch in center field of the polo grounds uh, when I was two years old, and no, I, I didn't actually see it live. It's all gone. I mean, I, it exists, but as far as which weighs heavily on the scale, there is no scale anymore. You mentioned LeBron James, and I want to read <laughs> from page 298 and 299. Okay, I gotta, I gotta, I, I got to go now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> of the uh, a book you wrote called The Whore of Akron. Yes, sir. This is uh, very near the end of the book. And you, right after LeBron made those rather notorious comments about everyone in Cleveland having to wake up and face the same miserable lives that they faced the day before, he decided to move to Miami. I, I- I, I just I just want to say here I, he didn't he didn't specify people in Cleveland all the haters it was all you know so, so all the people everywhere who were rooting for him to fail yeah I just I just wanted to okay that's fine that's fine please go go ahead and humiliate me no please. no 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 it's actually not a humiliation I'm going to read now what are you okay. so afraid of LeBron the losing or the winning do you finally understand that it's not easy that it's not meant to be easy hard is the only thing that makes it mean anything the only thing that makes losing or winning worth the pain of trying the only thing that makes living and dying worth the suffering in his post game comments. LeBron yeah. clearly yeah. indicated to me that he had read the Horror of Akron finally yes. because he yes. talked about how it had to be hard, and it yes. was hard. Yes, I wrote that. I actually wrote that. You wrote that. That is brilliant. <laughs> 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 I, I got to say, I, I, you know, not like anyone sits and reads through it. You know, I don't know any actors that sit and, and watch their own movies. Uh, so, so, yeah, I remember writing that. I remember you know, t- telling myself that. And, and I tell, still tell my son that. But, yeah, at that point in, in the book and, and, and all that, listen, when you write a book and you, you really consign young, a young athlete, you damn him to hell uh, for making a decision in the best interest of, of, of his family and his business, 
and 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 you condemn him because he didn't live up to being Moses, and then he actually turns into Moses. He comes back, and and he comes not, not only comes back to Cleveland, but he comes back and says in his in his essay uh, uh, on SNI.com that he feels he has a, a a mission, a calling beyond basketball, and he takes the entire city and and all that misery BS on his shoulders and redeems it and does lead his tribe to the promised land. Uh, maybe I might have tweaked that title a little uh, had I known. <laughs> oh, you also called him a megalomaniacal shitheel, and you said yes, that you were truly, yes. truly sorry when you yes. saw him in the locker room that you didn't haul yes. off and kick him in the nuts. Draymond well, Green kind of did that for you. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how things turn out. And, and, and you know, to, to Draymond's credit, had a monster game last night. But, you know, speaking for myself, and I, I'm working on another book now, you know, and, and I – the miracle of, of, of what's unfolded, I don't know that I'll do it justice, but I am in, in, a, in a, you know, there's some embarrassment there. there you know, I, the, a book, writing a book as a hater, using the decision, you know, LeBron's decision to frame and vent, you know, 50 years of personal and, and sports misery, you do plead guilty to a lot of things in there that say far more about me than they do about LeBron James. Yeah. Well, as a writer, I'm just happy that you got such an easy ending for your book. It writes itself. <laughs> you, Although, what, as, as all of you know, that's not actually true. Unfortunately. No, when we were talking before, you're like, I'm not sure what's going to, you know, how, how I'm going to structure this or what the, you know. Now, yeah. now, if this book doesn't turn out great. Yes, sir. Yes, you, sir. Uh, you only have yourself I, to blame. <laughs> right. I saw LeBron James drop a triple-double at Oracle so the Cavaliers could end a 52-year drought for my hometown on Father's Day in Cleveland with my son, and my father died on June 8th, or as, or as I'll always think of it, Game 3. So, you know, I mean, not to sound too cold-blooded, but yeah, we've got a lot, we've got a, a lot there, and, and I was already the luckiest Cleveland fan on earth before, long before last night, so... Uh, you know, there's a lot there. And, I, and of course, you know, Harper Collins wants 70,000 words by Friday. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, cry? Did you, did you, see- well, there was copious weeping. There were grown men who, 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 who were total strangers hugging each other. I, I hugged the guy last night, a little younger than me from Worcester. Uh, and, and I, I've never had a grown man. And I, look, I was, I was, I was crying. I, of course, I'm, I'm easy. I cry a lot. Uh, but, but I was holding him, and, and he was really uh, shaking with, with, with tears. It really is, again, it's just sports, and, and you tell it to the Incas, you know. <laughs> tell it to the beheaded opponents. It is sublimated war. It is home. It is all that BS, all that cliche. When you feel it, and you do realize for a lot of Cleveland fans, it's not just the teams. That there's not been a lot to celebrate, and, and you know, they're, they're thrilled to have, Finally, uh, a political convention in Cleveland. Oh my God, we're coming back, and it's 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 going to be what it's going to be. But but this this kind of thing unfolding the way it did. You had the the, the real watch parties. Uh, one of them sold out in 26 seconds, uh, and people were Craigslisting tickets for 700 dollars in Cleveland. I don't know that they got it, but but that's what they were asking. So you had people pouring into downtown before the game, just in that communal sense of of we're. I don't know how confident they felt that we're going to experience this together. It was kind of beautiful. 
And there's also, I mean, look, you'd take a Cleveland win if their offense was premised on Timothy Movgov uh, bouncing in balls from half court. But the fact that sure. it was all through, all through LeBron James, who yep. muscled up to Steph Curry, who stood over Steph Curry, who sort of said, I am from Cleveland. I'm from the industrial Midwest. You're like some Silicon Valley new gadget giga, and I'm going to block your shit out of the arena was amazing. I want to hear from that Warriors co-owner, the, the self-anointed genius who helped build that juggernaut. <laughs> and, and, and really, and, and, and not to excessively trash talk a team that, that really, I mean, they're defending champions and as a basketball fan and, and just on the performance art basis alone, that's a beautiful basketball team. But yeah, to see them dismantled by the Rust Belt loser, and, and I, I mean I mean Cleveland, not, not LeBron, I mean what... What, what LeBron did, what the Cavs did, but, but particularly what, what, what LeBron James did, I've been in a lot of, I guess they're pointless conversations. You know, you talk about the greatest of all time, and there will never be another NBA player who's ever going to be greater than Michael Jordan. And then there's this little argument that I've tried to make over the years that if it's not strictly about count the rings, if you're talking about the range of skills, that embody, you know, everyone, everyone from Larry Bird and Magic Johnson to Carl Malone, and you could go on, Oscar, you know, LeBron James. I'm sorry, he's the greatest basketball player I've ever seen, and so I want to parse it that way and say Michael, you know, will never be uh, overshadowed by any NBA player that follows it, and it's true, there'll never be another Michael Jordan. But the, these arguments about, oh, he's now the best power forward of all time. Well, you know, LeBron James is the best forward of all. I think the, those conversations, like conversations about Cleveland sports misery, I th- for me at least, they're over. Scott, we're very happy for you. Thank you. And Thank you. You've been there every step of the way with me, and I, I don't mean that sincerely. I'm grateful to have a chance to, to spread the joy a little bit you know, with you guys. And uh, we look forward to just finding other reasons to talk. We can, we can stay in touch. Well, as soon as the book writes itself, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, uh, and you know, we do have the best possible title, and we had it for a long time and never thought we could use it. Are you ready? Go. You're welcome, Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Rabb is the author of You're Welcome, Cleveland. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. I pour my heart, my blood, my sweat, my tears to this game, and... I don't know why the man above gives me the hardest role, but it's nothing a man above. Don't put you in situations that you can't handle. Cleveland! This is for you! Ow! On Sunday at Oakmont Country Club, Dustin Johnson won his first major after a bunch of close calls, beating the field by three strokes to win the U.S. Open. Johnson won by three instead of four because of a rules controversy that was handled in a bizarre manner on the fifth hole as Johnson was getting set to putt. His ball moved ever so slightly. Johnson consulted with a rules official at that point who told him that it was all good and that he should play on. Seven holes later, someone from the United States Golf Association approached him and said they were looking at video of this ball oscillation incident and they might deduct a penalty stroke after his round was over. When the Fox TV broadcast reported this, Rory McIlroy tweeted that it was amateur hour. Jordan Spieth asked if it was a joke. Thankfully for the USGA, the retroactive penalty 
which maybe shouldn't have been a penalty in the first place, didn't affect the outcome of the tournament, but it did make golf look like a dumb sport managed by dumb people, at least in my opinion. Joining us now to discuss is Michael Bamberger. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the author of a bunch of books. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. By the way, it was an excellent description, accurate in every way as far as I could tell. But if anybody actually understood it, they should be nominated for some kind of special Mensa Prize. Uh, well, you know, we were the, we were hoping that really you would. Well, we were hoping that you would be able to explain it to us. So, should we call someone else? Deeply, yeah, I would call somebody else. I'm deeply unqualified. I, uh, um, although I've been down this road with other rules stuff as a reporter, um, an underlying rule of golf is you play the ball as it lies. Everyone, most everyone who follows golf knows that rule. So if you're playing the ball not as it lies, then the question becomes, how did it get there? And if the ball, and once you examine that question, then it was like, did you do it or did somebody else do it? So really, these questions are core questions in golf. But related to all that, the integrity of the player, who is not nearly as supervised as he or she is in other sports, is a fundamental of what makes golf golf. So the reason this seemingly simple situation gets so complicated so quickly is that it really tests two fundamental principles of the game. Are you playing the ball as it lies, and what is the integrity of the player? And in this case, Johnson said, and he is known as a as as pretty much all top golfers as a player with great integrity. He's been in the situation before. I mean, on the course, Josh is making faces. Um, it's part of being a, a, a professional golfer is that you do this to yourself when necessary. We saw it happen in the final round to another player who was in contention, Shane Lowry, not in the final round, but on Saturday, right? Um, right. The, in, in this case, I was reading the rule from the decisions of golf Rule 18-2-0.5, weight of evidence standard for determining whether player caused his ball to move. Here's the rule. If the weight of the evidence indicates that it is more likely than not that the player caused the ball to move, even though that conclusion is not free from doubt, the player incurs a one-stroke penalty under Rule 18-2, and the ball must be replaced. Now, in this case, Johnson said, I didn't do it. The video showed that he didn't address the ball from behind. He didn't touch the, his club to the ground. The ball moved microscopically backward. There clearly could have been other factors. But to me, it looks like the rule wasn't even applied correctly, Michael, because it says that you get a one-stroke penalty and the ball must be replaced. He didn't get a one-stroke penalty at the time, and the ball wasn't replaced, meaning it wasn't returned to its microscopically different original position. Well, Stefan, that whole description explains why you make the high Scrabble scores you make. Your, I would say your understanding of that situation is 100% in accordance with what I would think. Um, and, and the only thing I could add to that is he's the guy over the ball. He's the person who is required to have the integrity to tell us whether he caused the ball to move or not. And he's telling you, I didn't. And there's really no reason not to accept that. And to think that videotape is going to tell you more than what the player can tell you is uh, unlikely. 
And beyond this rule, which can we call it a rule? It has three conditional clauses within the rule. It seems to be an idea for the possibility of agreeing to disagreeing about a rule, but that's fine. Within this rule, then you have the overall question of whatever you decide, please decide something. And so my question is, how is it possibly acceptable to have a delayed ruling? If they were robots, that would be okay. I mean, your score is your score, but... A, how could they not factor in the psychological aspect on the player himself? And B, how could they possibly allow this to go forward, basically telling everyone else in the tournament, well, we're not telling you if you need to lay up or go for it on this pin because you don't know really what the score is you're going for. It's like going into the ninth inning of a baseball game, not knowing if the score is 2-1 or 2-2, and then deciding to use your closer or not. Right, right. The the USGA would have... I believe, not that I can speak for the USJ, I think they would have a good counter-argument here, which is we need to review all possible evidence, any and all evidence that we can have to help us determine that the scorecard is accurate is to the good of the game. But having said that, in this particular instance, since you had a rules official right there, you had a player right over the ball, I can't see any reason why you couldn't just establish that it was over and done with really right there on that fifth green. This whole matter, I think, is complicated by something that happened with Tiger Woods in, I think, 2013. Do any of you remember this? He was playing in Chicago, and his ball was deep in the woods, and he went to move a little twig, and in so doing, the ball moved microscopically. Or not mm-hmm. microscopically, but, but just a very tiny amount. Do you guys remember this at yeah. all? Yeah. And uh, so now in that instance, and it's a different instance, like like real life always is, never really truly repeats itself, there was um, a hyper-focused camera on it that showed the ball moved. I mean, to me, it was very obvious that the ball moved and to millions of others as well. Tiger came in and reviewed the tape later and said that ball did not move. And the, and the rules officials who were trained professionals from the PGA Tour said, basically, we don't believe you. We're not accepting your description of what happened here. We're telling you that the ball moved, and that is extremely unusual uh, for golf to to happen in golf because the integrity of the player is a synchronous But in this instance, um, it it seems like there was almost a little carryover from that instance to this instance, and there should not have been. Well, when you're watching this tournament and you're watching it all, unfold, there seems to be this kind of disconnect between how golf, the the poobahs of the sport kind of see themselves and see their sport. And then how, whether it's fans of golf or just sports fans or just people who have encountered this on Twitter, perceive the game. On the one hand, as you said, these are kind of fundamental things to the rule of golf, play the ball as it lies, the integrity of the player, the rules are, and ethics are so important. On the other hand, it just looks like a bunch of tight asses. The ball is moving. If it moved at all, it's microscopic and has absolutely no effect on anything. The player is standing there and talks to an official who tells him, like, just go ahead. And then they come back seven holes later and they're like, you know, we convened another meeting with like 500 of us. And, and we, we came need to a another hour. Yeah. And we came to a different mm-hmm. conclusion. It's just a really bad look for golf. And I wonder if you feel like, the USGA, I know you can't speak for them, but do you think that they think they did a great job here? 
I don't know if they think they did a great job or not. I don't see really how they could because here, uh, if it all went smoothly, would we be discussing it at this point? Golf is very complicated because of the nature of the playing field and so many weird things do happen to the golf ball and to golfers and people fall over and they trip on their golf ball and does the ball move back or not? I mean, you know, animals come on and move golf balls. It's when gusts come up, um, people play wrong balls. I mean, there's so many, literally thousands of different things that, that come up. So the rules are necessarily and unfortunately complicated. And you do have to have a set of rules by which uh, all the players will be 100% faithful to. They really can't allow for any gray matter in any of these rules because it sends you down a slippery slope. That's the that's the fundamental thing is feeling here. So, yes, it had absolutely no effect on whether he's going to make that ensuing three-putt or not. In Tiger's situation, the woods uh, the same. But the general feeling is that if there's not complete adherence to the rules of golf in every last instance, the system breaks down. And in that regard, I am uh, more completely sympathetic and, and really what I'm trying to say is understanding of the uh, the USJ's position. Oh, so, I'm, yes. I'm, I agree with you, Michael. I don't think anyone is saying, I'm certainly not arguing that it doesn't matter that the ball moved or that there should be rules governing the ball's movement. What seems bizarre to, I think, most people is that it took two and a half hours to resolve this and it left everybody uninformed about the score of the ongoing tournament. Like we, we have instant replay in every sport. We have high definition cameras trained on these guys, particularly the leaders. How on earth could it take two plus hours to determine what to do here particularly when there was an official standing there having a conversation with him who could have had an immediate conversation with people watching the replay. I, I agree with that. Stephen. It, 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 that is a black guy for golf that, that it takes you that long to make a decision on, the, on a situation that's not really that complicated. Uh, that serves the game poorly. And that, and that furthers the reputation of the game. For as one of you guys said, you know, uh, tight asses and lawyers. I mean, listen to this whole discussion. It sounds like uh you got a group of lawyers conferring, uh, uh, discussing this rule of golf in the first place. Um, and as a matter of fact, a lot of the people who uh, make the rules of golf and interpret them um, are are trained lawyers. I mean, it, it kind of requires that mind. And you know, the, one of the one of the smartest things uh, Dustin Johnson said yesterday was, "I didn't really understand the rule," um, but that's problematic too. The rules shouldn't be so complicated that. Uh, that you know, one of the best players in the world doesn't even really understand him. Yeah. But uh, I think he's being truthful when he said that. Do you think that there's any case that can be made that this uncertainty helped Johnson? I know we're all saying that. How could it have? Um, you know, he doesn't even know what his score is, but neither do all his competitors. And if you look at the history of his collapses, it's when he had a pretty big lead and maybe he felt he had a safety net. I don't know. I'm just spinning this out, but maybe there's something to either his psychology or one psychology where this, you know, eliminates any wiggle room and he has to even worry that he's going to have a worse score than he thought he did, thereby concentrating him and not letting him relax. Do you think that's possible? We must recall that he missed out on a playoff in 2010 because he got confused about what was a bunker and what was a waste area. Right, <laughs> right. I think what what you're describing would be possible for another player. Um, 
you know, I've said this many times, but no one played red-ass golf better than Tiger Woods. So if he felt like he was being wrong, um, like he might have felt in that situation, he would have taken that emotion and turned it into uh, something else, if I'm understanding your comment correctly. But in the case of Dustin Johnson, he had, I, there are very few play, players on the tour now. Uh, Jason Duffner comes to mind, but play with more emotional reserve, uh, really, than this guy. Um, I mean, he's really, uh, you know, from the, uh, the old seed uh, ball, hit ball uh, school. And um, I think his thing was, um, I'm just going to keep plugging along here. And he was playing so well. All he had to do was keep doing what he was doing. I mean, he played a airtight uh, round of golf, so no, I wouldn't particularly uh, think that in, in the case of Justin Johnson. For another player, maybe, but not for Justin Johnson. All right, Michael. He won, Dustin Johnson, and he's had so many close calls in majors. Um, did it surprise you that he had the resilience to hang on and, and shut this out? Is this sort of a narrative you know, capstone for his career? I wondered that prior to this, even I was following very closely, you know, walking with uh, his group on Sunday. And I wondered if he was going to collapse at some point, even as well as he was playing, if there would be some weird blunder that would cause him to lose the event. Because I wondered if he really wants everything that comes with being a major champion, which is a lot of scrutiny of your golf game and your life. And there have been a lot of reasons to think that he doesn't want to, live that kind of life. Um, uh, he stepped up and got it done. So uh, I think that answers our question. And uh, in terms of talent, I've thought for a long time, you can talk about Jordan Spieth and Jason Day, who are phenomenal golf talents, but my feeling is that, that Dustin Johnson was the second most talented player after Rory McIlroy for, you know, and has been for the last five, six, seven, eight years. Uh so it was just odd that, uh, that, that, that this guy couldn't get it done in major championships and something beyond skill was holding him back. And it's almost by definition, you could say, over now by the simple fact that he won one of these major championships on probably the hardest golf course uh, in all championship golf. Michael Bamberger is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's the author of a bunch of books, including Men in Green, which is out in paperback now. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be with you. All right, now it is time for After Balls. And I alluded to this during our segment with Michael Bamberger. But in 2010, Dustin Johnson lost the chance to make a playoff at the PGA Championship at Whistling Straits because he did not know the difference between a bunker and a waste area. I'm looking now at something on golf.com that's called Dustin Johnson's PGA Bunker Debacle in Oral History, which is definitely not an article that I'm going to read. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the local rules were posted in the clubhouse, Stefan. I'm sure we talked about this at the time. You've got to know the difference between a bunker and a waste area. Mm -hmm. If you want to win a major championship, you've got to know the difference between a bunker and a waste area. Why am I screaming? It's an outrage. Mike, what is your waste area? John Daly's career. Done. Out. Drop the mic. That's my golf. Funny golf reference. So, uh, so Mookie Betts, perhaps you're familiar with the work of uh, Mookie Betts. He's a young outfielder, 23 years old for the Boston Red Sox. 
a couple weeks ago, he had five home runs in the span of seven at-bats. And just uh, yesterday, as of this taping, he provided the go-ahead solo shot in a 2-1 Red Sox win over Seattle. He's fantastic, this young Mookie Betts. But the question is, is he the greatest Mookie ever? First, let us stick to the world of baseball, where you have Mookie Wilson. And Mookie Wilson, in his 12-year career which includes 10 years with the Mets and three years with the Toronto Blue Jays. Do you remember that, Josh? The Mookie Wilson Blue Jays era? I had forgotten about that. Yeah, it was traded mid-year, Mets to Blue Jays. He compiled a career war, cumulatively, of 22.2. Now, young Mookie Betts, though, as a 23-year-old and therefore only in his third year, has a war of, are you ready for this? 11.4. So he is more than half. Mookie Betts is more than halfway there to surpassing Mookie Wilson's career, having just played really two and a little fraction of a year. That's amazing. I object to this after all. I object. Because Mookie Wilson is great. Yes, Mookie Wilson is great. Does this account for his playoff war? (laughs) Does this account for the fact that he was at bat in game six with that wild pitch? That that he jumped, and if he had not waved the runner home, would the runner had Lee Mazzilli, right? Would he have come home? No, and that was Ray Knight. Ray Knight. Oh, Ray that Knight. was Ray Knight to <clears throat> right, lead a tie, Ray to win. And also, would um, you know he kept he kept Nails Dykstra off the field while they platooned, and that's for the good. We later found out. But okay, so Mookie Belt bets his way on his way to passing Mookie Wilson as the greatest Mookie in baseball history. But what about other sports? So I investigated. I do uh, these commentaries for only a game, and I thought I'd be thorough. I debuted this there, but I'm, I'm going to update it in this space frequently. In fact, I'm going to get a website registered called the Mookie Meter. Cause, or maybe it will be the somewhat more clunky, but for some reason funnier, official Mookie rankings. So I investigated the other sports. There's never been a Mookie to play football. There's never been a Mookie, this may shock you, to play hockey. There has, of course, been a Mookie to play professional basketball, that Mookie being? Blaylock. Mookie Blaylock. Now, there is no war stat for basketball, but there is win shares. It's not exactly the same for a number of reasons, like the fact that there are only 12 guys on a basketball team, and if your team doesn't win, you can't get a win share, but with war, you can. But what I did is I I did a calibration. I looked at the greatest all-time baseball seasons and basketball seasons, and I looked at the 100th greatest uh, basketball seasons and baseball seasons, and I looked at career rankings, and I found that war is generally 20% higher than win shares. It's a little crude, but if you do this, uh, Mookie Blaylock has a career win shares of 71, adjusted for my score, let's call it 60. So this means that Mookie Betts is halfway to Mookie Wilson territory, and Mookie Wilson was about a third as good a baseball player as Mookie Blaylock was a basketball player, meaning that six more seasons or so, Mookie Betts can ascend to the rank of the greatest Mookie in sports history. I will be updating the Mookie rankings as developments arise. Quarterly? <laughs> Annually? Biannually? Per, I think per every per every home run, every time Mookie Betts advances the runner, I'll come on the show and tell you what his war is. <laughs> are Productive you, outs. Are you familiar with Theodore Todd Mookie Jones the fourth? 
Mookie Jones the fourth? No. Who is this Mookie Jones the fourth? He played basketball for Syracuse from 2008 to 2011, accumulating oh, yeah. a total of 202 points. Yeah, yeah. But we're just keeping it in the professional levels. Please. Well, look, I mean, as of 30 seconds ago when I Googled this, it is unclear to me where mm-hmm. or if he's playing overseas. But you're going to have to come up with a like EuroLeague translation <laughs> of Mookie Jones's stats if he is, in fact, playing in the EuroLeague. He played for the Rochester Razor Sharks in 2014. Uh-huh. Oh my God. What, what's even more scary than a shark? A Razor, a razor Shark. shark. It was a, ra- a laser. Isn't that isn't that a just a riff on the Austin Powers joke? That's got to be what it is. A razor shark. <laughs> Stefan, what is your waste area? U.S. track and field Mookie Salam. He's the most peaceable of Mookies. <laughs> Stefan, <laughs> Stefan, what is your waste area? Uh, we did not talk about the OJ documentary, OJ Made in America. I think we're going to do that next week. Just a tease. But a little bit of O.J., a little O.J. preview. Uh, O.J. Simpson in his career, of course, was a, a, a celebrity pitch man. That's kind of what he became famous for. Hertz was his most important client. He started there during his football career in the 1970s. He was making commercials right up until he murdered Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman in 1994. O.J. ran through airports. And in a Jump the Shark sequel, O.J. flew through airports. He made commercials for Hertz with Arnold Palmer and Dick Butkus and Bubba Smith that riffed on the tastes great, less filling Miller Lite ads. He made Hertz commercials with Jamie Lee Curtis, and he made one in which he posed this question. If winners rent from Hertz, where do losers rent? Why is he speaking so slowly? There were probably a thousand takes, Josh, and that was the best one. Uh, Simpson did ads for Golden Pioneer Chicken, and with his first wife, Marguerite, the Schick Fleximatic, and he did a really weird one for Chevrolet in 1970, in which he posed in a three-point stance opposite a Chevy Nova. Uh, The thing about OJ and all of these commercials and in the Monday Night Football booth and in the movies is that he sucked. He was awkward and wooden (laughs) and stilted and jockey and dull. His appeal was all projection, the anodyne and unthreatening black man. Uh, The director of uh, OJ Made in America, Ezra Edelman, shows us there how OJ could turn it on. He talked about the OJ effect. But it was kind of like the Trump effect, based more on stupidity and gullibility of the public and an endless parade of sycophants and enablers. But for all of OJ's suckitude, nothing that you will see in OJ Made in America is as sad or pathetic as the pathological, off-the-rails, fuck it, my life is over anyway, post-murders OJ, debauching in Florida, and doing anything for a buck. The apex of this part of OJ's life was the rap video, Get Juiced, made to promote a 1999 straight-to-DVD show called Juiced. Juiced was a ripoff of the MTV show Punked. OJ was made up in various disguises and posed in weird situations as a homeless person selling oranges by a freeway, as a used car salesman selling a white Ford Bronco, and he'd eventually tell the pranky, you've been juiced. For the impossibly pathetic details, I highly recommend a piece on Vice by an actor who was hired to work on the show named Harmon Leon. In one prank, OJ was dressed as a gangster rapper, screening singers and dancers to be in a music video. Naturally, an accompanying music video was produced. It was called Get Juiced. OJ starts by saying, let's talk about me a little bit, which of course OJ would do, and then... Why do people wonder about my intentions? Uh-huh. Why do people ask me so many questions about how I made it to the top? About all the times I made those t 
team's defensive stops. They say, yo, coach, there's no stopping the juice. And when I'm on the field, I'm like a lion going loose. You better shoot me with a tranquilizer drug. Don't be fooled, stupid. I'm not a Simpson named Bart. I'm not a cartoon. When I'm on the floor, I'm like a lion going loose. Better shoot me with a tranquilizer dart. Don't be fooled, stupid. I'm not a Simpson named Bart. Okay. Um, the chorus? All you other rappers better run and hide, man. He's got a highs, man. Black and buffalo is like one, two, three. When yeah. we needed a big play, the ball came to me. So all you play are hitters and you suck at MCs. You better get on your knees and get some of these. Run this last game, it's an easy transition. It's like a six six or an intuition. So now it comes down to just one decision. I'll be going up the middle while you suckers be blitzing. To the 50 yard line, leaving all you behind. Then I hit the sideline. Better hit your rewind. I'm out here just to show you all. I'm as tight with this mic as I was with the ball. All right, we're good. The URL getjuiced.com is available now. OJ Simpson is one of the worst people in the history of humankind. <laughs> there was a uh, This American Life episode yeah, with Harmon Leon talking about this called Too Soon. Very good. Yeah. Josh, what's your waste area? Thanks, Stefan. So a little <laughs> bit of insight into how the juice is made here. We thought we were going to talk about the OJ documentary, but then uh, – Something in golf happened. We wanted to talk to Scott Rabb. So we're going to do the OJ documentary next week. But I have also prepared an OJ Afterball. This documentary is uh, fantastic. Um, maybe if all of the amazing reviews didn't convince you, maybe the fact that we're going to talk about it next week will convince you to uh, watch the seven and a half hours. But there's kind of like a a claim, an implicit claim of comprehensiveness here. And the amazing thing about this 30 for 30 is it could have been so much longer and still, I mean, they it's did seven a, and a half hours. They did a great, they did a great <laughs> job, but there was a, a lot of stuff they didn't include. There was an 11 hour cut apparently. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. So the one thing I was really waiting for that was not there in addition to the get juiced video was June 17th, 1994, that's the night of the Bronco chase. You know, Al Cowlings and OJ are driving along the freeways of LA. They eventually make their way back to OJ's house. And all these helicopters around, all these news cameras, all these onlookers, it's just a crazy scene. And all of the networks were going live and covering this and doing it in a very kind of seat of their pants sort of way. And ABC gets this phone call from somebody who's outside of OJ's house and they patch the guy through with Peter Jennings. Let's listen to that. Just gonna ask everybody to be quiet for a moment. We have on the phone with us as well, Robert Higgins, who lives in the neighborhood and is on the ground and can see inside the van. Mr. Higgins. Uh, yes, uh, how are you? Uh, just about as tense as you are, sir. Oh my Lord, this is quite the tenses. <laughs> At this point, somebody has got to be telling Peter Jennings. I, I think that's really all you need to hear. Is, that, yeah. is this just hindsight, Mike, or is that really all you need to hear? 
You don't have to know the career of uh, any of the great prankers in history, be they Captain Jenks, Bob from Bowie, Maryland, any of your Zagnut morning crew. You just, your antenna needed to be raised at this point. What can you see? Oh, what I'm looking at right now is I'm looking at the van and I see OJ kind of slouching down, looking very, very upset. Now, look at here. He looked very upset. Stefan? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's go back to the clip. I don't know what he gonna be doing. Can you can you can you see him doing anything specific? Is he merely sitting there? He is just uh, sitting around, you know, just uh, looking like he'd be very nervous. Can you hear anything, Mr. Higgins? It's just too much commotion. I be in the back of a news van, so I can't really hear that good, but I can see it all, and I see OJ. He sees OJ. He sees OJ. He's in the back of a news van. Who isn't? Who wasn't in the back of a news van? It's unimpeachable. If one of the remarkable things about this scene, and I hadn't remembered this from 22 years ago, is how the streets were lined with hundreds, if not thousands of people. And there was like very, very little crowd control here. So it it is within the realm of possibility that some random dude now, albeit some random dude who didn't sound like this random dude could have, you know, made his way towards the Simpson estate. Um, Cause this was a very uncontrolled scene. All right, back to the call. I see OJ man. And he looks scared. And I would be scared cause there's cops all deep in this. Thank you, Mr. Higgins. And Baba Booey to y'all. <laughs> And there we go. Uh, there we go, Mike. There it is. There it is. All right. So Baba Booey, obviously the uh, catchphrase of Howard Stern show producer Gary Delabate. But who uh, among the ABC cognoscenti would know that? Peter Jennings. That guy's not from uh, from our country. He doesn't know what's going on. So let's see, let's see who uh, steps in. The driveway of O.J. Simpson's home in Brentwood. Clearly an effort being made to have him come out of the vehicle in the doorway of the house, his friend, Al Cowling. Peter, by the way, just for the record, this is Al Michaels. That was a totally farcical call. Uh, lest anybody think that that was somebody who was truly across the street. That was not. Uh, he, he said something in code at the end that's indicative of uh, the mentioning of the name of uh, a certain radio talk show host. Okay, thanks, Al. <laughs> Uh, indicative Al Michaels yeah so Al Michaels went on the Stern show later and said that what was going through his head in that moment was should I say the words Howard Stern or not he chose not to Uh, but he still (laughs) managed to somehow communicate with many polysyllabic words that he knew what was up and communicated that to the viewers all right, let's just uh, hear what Peter Jennings had to say. So he was not there. All right, we have them on every coast. Thank you very much. Not the first time nor the last time will have been had, but... We have them on every coast. The British Columbia coast, the California coast. Newfoundland. So, you know, don't let this discourage you from watching the OJ documentary. Other than this moment, pretty much everything is covered. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer at Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.